Like, why do we hold as a society, do we hold safety above all other values? Other societies, other cultures did not do that. They understood that there are worse things than dying, which would be to not live fully or to not live the right life, to not fulfill your destiny. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Charles Eisenstein. American intellectual and author of the books Sacred Economics and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, as well as recently the essay The Coronation, which deals with America's response to the coronavirus. Much of Charles Eisenstein's work deals with his thesis that global culture is immersed in a destructive story of separation, and part of his mission is to present an alternative path of interbeing. Charles and I spoke in late June of 2020. His essay, The Coronation, is available at his website, charleseisenstein.org. And for context, I'll read several sections of it over the course of this interview. For most of my life, I've had the feeling that humanity was nearing a crossroads. Always the crisis, the collapse, the break was imminent, just around the bend, but it didn't come and it didn't come. Imagine walking a road and up ahead you see it, you see the crossroads, it's just over the hill, around the bend, past the woods, cresting the hill. You see you were mistaken. It was a mirage. It was farther away than you thought. You keep walking. Sometimes it comes into view, sometimes it disappears from sight, and it seems this road goes on forever. You're right. For most of my life, I've had the feeling that humanity was nearing a crossroads. Now, all of a sudden, we go around a bend, and here it is. Talk to me about the, this particular moment in time. Yeah. Uh, so for most of my life, well, I, don't, I wouldn't say most of my life, but for a long time, I've been saying this isn't going to last forever. This is not sustainable. There's a big breakdown coming. And I, I never fully bought into the Y2K, the peak oil, the 2012, uh, the economic meltdown, um, climate collapse, et cetera, et cetera. I never actually fully went there, but I, but I could recognize that all of these things were emanations from some kind of event. I got used to like, well, okay, this event exists outside of linear time. It is an archetypal event that projects into linear time, you know, as these crises, but it's never the big one. And, and then all of a sudden COVID-19 came along and it seemed like everything was changing in not a very good way. And, and that the breakdown, like the destruct, the, the uh, disintegration was actually underway or had actually reached uh, a critical phase, a point of no return. And that still, I, I don't think we've really felt very much of the impact yet. Uh, it's going to be playing out over a long period of time. And what that impact will be really depends on us right now, on, on what we claim as normal. Uh, we're not going to go back to normal automatically. It's not about going back to anything. We are, as I said in that essay, at a point where multiple timelines radiate out from the present into the future. And you could always you could say that that's always been true, but right now there's a special awareness, I think, a special opportunity to choose one path or another. Whereas for most of my life, the path has been, the choice has been fairly unconscious. Now it has risen into our collective awareness. Uh, and, and we can question, do we want to continue on the path that we've been going on for the last 30, 40, 50 years? Like we are seeing our power to make huge changes. A year ago, the idea of, you know, even reforming the police a little bit, 
that that was like this tiny incremental thing might have been possible. And now people are thinking on a much more radical level about why the police are what they are and what they could be and and how should we shape society. So yeah, it's a matter of what we are claiming as our future, not what COVID-19 is going to do to us. Yeah, you emphasize this importance of the self being understood as relational and interdependent. And I'm wondering if in your, in your opinion, the current crisis will eventually be thought of as a watershed moment in terms of relating to this paradigm. You know, is this the moment where we draw inward or is it the moment that we become more interdependent? So we've had 30, 40, 50 years of developing holistic medicine, for example. The development of, of festivals, uh, 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 the, the development of places like Esalen, the questioning of the, the dangers of excessive hygiene <laughs> and sanitation. A few years ago, there was an article about that, about you know is, is excessive hygiene making us sick? So there's been all of this progress toward a more, more holistic relational understanding of health and well-being. And then it's as if it all got swept aside when COVID-19 came, everybody rushed back to the narrowest orthodoxy, in part because our uh, governing authorities have always embraced, at least as institutions, have embraced the narrowest orthodoxies, because those are those are embodied in the corporations and the financial system. You know, all of our central institutions are almost by definition very orthodox. And in this crisis, we have given almost total power to those institutions. So, but but also like many people who are otherwise very alternative um, and who have been doing acupuncture and growing their own herbs, you know, and kind of people who do group hugs, you know, and have go to yoga classes and, and have embraced lifestyles and, and diets and uh, approaches to health that are outside the um, dominant medical paradigm. So many of these people stopped doing all of those things and started distancing and, you know, obeying lockdown and wearing masks. Uh, and, and not only because they were forced to do so, but because they really, to a large extent, at least believed what they were being told and accepted the framing of the pandemic. And so it's hard for me to even say this right now without sounding like I'm uh, advocating an alternative theory and saying, well, that was all wrong and here's what's right. I'm not doing that. Uh, I don't really know what is, I don't have a unifying alternative narrative that says, here's what COVID-19 actually is. You know, it's 5G, you know, it's glyphosate, it's vaccines or whatever. There's all these alternative theories. I think, and I've, you know, gone deeply into some of these. And what I've come to is that nobody really knows. Uh, that I, I think that there are severe deficiencies in the conventional virological explanation of it. Uh, gaping questions. Lisa Rankin wrote a, uh, who is also has a lot of time at Esalen. She, she wrote an article, 17 questions about COVID-19. So that there are there are gaping holes in the dominant official narrative, and in also all of the alternative narratives. So I'm not saying, okay, guys, you know, there's been this big conspiracy, there's this hoax, it's a pandemic, they're they're all wrong, but it is showing up some of the dysfunction of our system of 
medical, of healthcare, of medical research, of medical publishing, um, and the way that we run our medical system. And and I would, I wish people, I mean, we couldn't, we, so far we've doubled down on the orthodoxy, but we could have taken another approach. Uh, all, many of the things that have been uh, censored from mainstream media, from social media too, uh, actually have a lot of merit to them. And you can find science that validates the uh, immune enhancing effects of vitamin D specifically for coronaviruses. You know, you can find the stuff on vitamin C also um, on Artemisia annua, the uh, sweet wormwood, the herb that's being used all across Africa to treat COVID-19. Once you step outside of the mainstream, there's no longer so much reason to fear this disease. I mean, it looks like so far, this is where we drew inward, began experiencing a digitized and sanitized life where, where oh, there's this dangerous virus out there, so let's protect ourselves, find a way to ultimately destroy it. That's called a vaccine and otherwise insulate ourselves from the world, insulate ourselves from life, insulate ourselves from each other. That paradigm of health, that paradigm of well-being makes sense in a mythology, in a world story of separation that says who you are is a separate self in a world of other, in a world filled with other competing separate selves and natural forces that are indifferent to your well-being because they're random mathematical forces. You know, what If you accept that, then of course your well-being is going to come through increasing your domination over the other, over these competing genetically, biologically competing others and insulating ourselves from the forces of nature and, and harnessing them to our purposes, becoming dominant. That's the underlying mythology that generates a lot of the medical uh, and public health paradigms that we see current today. So, so it's hard to advocate ideas like building immunity through the microbiome and pointing out that viruses are an integral part of, of life. Uh, that that they are genetic messengers. That that life thrives only in relationship, not in isolation. These ideas are well at home in an ecological, holistic worldview, but they are not at home in the worldview of separation. So, so in, in a way, the the response to COVID nineteen is showing how still entrenched we are in the story of separation. When push comes to shove. Everyone flocks back to the response patterns that come from the separate self. Totalitarianism, the perfection of control, is the inevitable end project of the mythology of the separate self. What else but a threat to life like a war would merit total control? Thus, Orwell identified perpetual war as a crucial component of the party's rule. The paradox of the program of control is that its progress rarely advances us any closer to its goal. Despite security systems in almost every upper middle class home, people are no less anxious or insecure than they were a generation ago. Despite elaborate security measures, the schools are not seeing fewer mass shootings. Despite phenomenal progress in medical technology, people have, if anything, become less healthy over the past 30 years, as chronic disease has proliferated and life expectancy stagnated, and in the USA and Britain, started to decline. War on germs thinking brings results akin to those of war on terror, war on crime, 
war on weeds, and the endless wars we fight politically and interpersonally. First, it generates endless war. Second, it diverts attention from the ground conditions that breed illness, terrorism, crime, weeds, and the rest. So this is, this is I call it a, a solution template. Uh, it is as old as civilization itself. It's as old as the idea of good and evil, the, as old as the idea of the conquest of the wild. The solution template being, if you have a problem, find the bad thing and destroy, dominate, defeat the bad thing. If the problem is crime, you find the bad thing. What would that be? That would be criminals. And the solution would be to lock them up. Terrorism, bad thing. Bad guy, terrorists. Solution, kill the terrorists. Uh, disease, bad thing, pathogen. Virus or bacteria. Solution, kill the virus, kill the bacteria. Fallen crop yields. Bad thing, weeds or bugs. Solution, herbicides, pesticides. So the, this way of thinking pervades all realms, even spirituality. You know, where it becomes about finding the bad thing in yourself, going to war against that and dominating part of yourself so that you can be a good person, so that you can improve. You have to work on yourself. There's a struggle, an inner struggle, and you're trying really hard and doing a good job. Like th this way of thinking is almost ubiquitous. And I will say that it is giving way to gentler, more compassionate ways of operating in the world and on ourselves. Like maybe it's about self-acceptance. Maybe it's about giving voice and attention to the shadow um, rather than trying to conquer the shadow. So this, this, you know, this is not something that I'm all of a sudden pro proclaiming right now. I'm drawing on uh, a rich lineage. Uh, but that general way of thinking is still a deeply ingrained habit in modern societies. And we see it playing out in COVID-19. So, so an alternative way of looking at it would be something like bioterrain theory that says a pathogen or a weed, you can apply it to agriculture too, uh, uh, an insect outbreak, a disease outbreak, colony collapse disorder with bees, it's a symptom of an underlying disharmony, an underlying toxicity, an underlying condition. So what is causing colony collapse disorder? The find the enemy approach says, well, it's this mite, it's this fungus, it's this parasite. And we can solve the problem with some chemical that destroys that parasite. Terrain theory would say, would look at the, the totality of the way that we're raising bees from the killing of drones to the shape of the hives, to the way that we feed sugar to the bees, to the pesticides that are used in their environment, to the way that they're moved around all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Like pretty much everything that we do with bees conventionally is contrary to, to the nature of bees. I recommend an amazing book about, about bees called Song of Increase. Basically everything is is wrong. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and that, that's invisible, though, if we focus on the pathogen. Same thing with COVID-19. If we focus on this virus, and I'm not saying the virus is unrelated to COVID-19 or that it isn't part of this disease. But if we look only at that, then we never ask questions like, why are people so susceptible to it? Most people who die from it have other serious chronic conditions. 
So why are there so many people with serious chronic conditions? This is not a healthy population that we have right now. And, and when we think in terms of the terrain, what is the condition of the tissues of the body that makes them hospitable to a virus? What is the condition of our immune system? What challenges are we facing? How might the body invite in even bacteria and viruses as a response to these conditions? Body cells will secrete uh, these vesicles that contain RNA, these exosomes that can intercept certain toxic substances or other challenges in the environment uh, and neutralize them. So the disease process can be seen as part of a larger whole, not just as this random bad thing that happened to you because you were in the wrong place in the wrong time or your defenses were down. Like even this idea of your defenses. Someone can be perfectly healthy and robustly immune to one thing and then be totally susceptible to something else. Like maybe they needed to get the cold or the flu to, to clean out some accumulated metabolic wastes. You know, it's part of, in Chinese medicine, at least when I was living in, in Taiwan, you know, there was a saying that if you don't get little sicknesses, that someday you'll get a big sickness. So anyway, this is like a whole way of thinking or, or you know, in terms of crime. If you focus on crime as caused by criminals, you never look at the breeding conditions of crime. You never ask, why does somebody become a criminal? Is it just that they're bad? Or is it because maybe they are suffering a generational trauma that could go back to you know the slave trade or that could go back to other forms of exploitation and degradation? Or is it because they have no economic opportunities and the best opportunities are in the illegal drug trade? Or is it because poverty? Like what kind of cultural and economic conditions bring someone to crime? If you don't ever look there, you're in an endless war against crime. You're in an endless war against terrorism. What breeds terrorism? You're an endless, in an endless war against COVID-19. The, the essay that you wrote in some ways deconstructed a lot of the questions that are, that are being asked. People like Baudrillard and Derrida and Michel Foucault and Roland Barthes, I think that you're following in their footsteps. I don't know if you think that yourself, if they're important to you. I'm not a scholar. You know, I've read bits and pieces of Derrida, maybe a little bit more of Foucault, uh, but I have been in a lot, certainly a lot of conversations with people who have studied these philosophers more deeply and, and who have digested. I mean, the, the, the general intellectual culture has long ago digested these ideas. I, I do talk a lot about story and the construction of reality. So sometimes people think that I am advocating a postmodern uh, deconstructionist position, but I actually am not because the power of story, yes, I affirm the power of story to create reality, but I do not think that human beings are the source of our stories and that we can simply change reality by deciding to change our story. Stories are beings, mythologies are beings, archetypes are beings that create us to a much greater extent than we create them. What I know to be true is that we are in a world that is bursting with beings, that irrigation of beingness to the human being alone, that modernity has accomplished and that postmodernity does not challenge. Postmodernism post is actually more modernism, I think. It doesn't challenge the central 
anthropocentric tenet of the modern mind. I, I'm I'm advocating a, a world in which we are not the only beings here. That we are that that in fact everything is a being, and that the relationships among these beings are what constitute reality. That reality itself is relational. So that's you know postmodern thinking does affirm that reality is relational, but it excludes everything but the human being from that relating. It tends to, it doesn't give agency and consciousness to non-human beings. Because COVID-19 seems to justify so many items on the totalitarian wish list, there are those who believe it to be a deliberate power play. It is not my purpose to advance that theory nor to debunk it, although I will offer some meta-level comments. First, a brief overview. The theories, there are many variants, talk about Event 201, sponsored by the Gates Foundation, CIA, etc. last October, and a 2010 Rockefeller Foundation white paper detailing a scenario called Lockstep, both of which lay out the authoritarian response to a hypothetical pandemic. They observe that the infrastructure, technology, and legislative framework for martial law has been in preparation for many years. All that was needed, they say, was a way to make the public embrace it. And now that has come. Whether or not current controls are permanent, a precedent is being set for the tracking of people's movements at all times, because coronavirus, the suspension of freedom of assembly, because coronavirus, the military policing of civilians, because coronavirus, extrajudicial indefinite detention, quarantine, because coronavirus, the banning of cash, because coronavirus, censorship of the internet, to combat disinformation, because coronavirus, compulsory vaccination and other medical treatment establishing the state's sovereignty over our bodies because coronavirus, the classification of all activities and destinations into the expressly permitted and the expressly forbidden, you can leave your house for this but not that, eliminating the unpoliced, non-judicial gray zone. That totality is the very essence of totalitarianism. Necessary now, though, because, well, coronavirus. So yeah, like these are all things that have happened under COVID-19 and are really extensions and intensifications of long existing trends. So our civil liberties, such as freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, you know, to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures, all that has been eroded for, for many, many years. And now there's seemingly a medical reason that trumps all all of these rights. Like you do not have rights anymore because somebody could get sick, somebody could die. So you no longer have the right to freely assemble. You no longer have the right to uh, congregate in worship. Freedom of religion is another one that has been uh, superseded by keeping everybody safe. Keeping everybody safe is the perennial justification for totalitarianism. George Orwell identified that as uh, like you have to have a war perpetual war in order to justify the totalitarian state because there's something always more important than individual freedom and more important than all of the good things of life because you could die. So this keep us safe, uh, the threat, basically the threat to our existence has morphed over time from global communism and the Soviet Union to terror Islamic fundamentalism, the clash of civilizations. For a while, it was the Colombian drug lords. If you remember back in the 90s, after communism fell, 
Like we were desperately searching for an enemy. Uh, and then terrorism came along. Uh, and so here's another God to, to sacrifice our civil liberties to, our freedom. <laughs> uh, and now it's uh, a medical God. You know, here's something else that trumps all of these other values, keeping safe. So I, I, in the essay, I look at the, the origin of like, why do we hold as a society, do we hold safety above all other values? Other societies, other cultures did not do that. They understood that there are worse things than dying, which would be to not live fully or to not live the right life, to not fulfill your destiny. That would be worse than dying. Uh, and they understood because they were in much closer contact with death that you're going to die anyway, that that there is no such thing as saving a life, actually. It's always pro postponing death. We are not given life to survive it. That's ridiculous. I mean, suppose you could prolong your life and, and reduce your risk by staying indoors for the rest of your life and never seeing another human being again. Like, is that worth it? If he gave you five extra years, most people would say no. Is it worth it if it gives you 20 extra years? Well, you know, you get into a gray zone. Like, would you be willing to stay indoors and not see another human being for a month if it would save your life? If you went out, you would certainly die. Or if you had, if it was like the bubonic plague and you had an 80% chance or a 50% chance of dying if you went to the town square, like a lot of, most people would, would yeah, I'm going to stay in. But what if it's 1% or what if it's 1,000th of 1%? Then are you willing to shut down all sociality for a month? Maybe some people would. Like this, it's a gray zone. Well, what if, what if, would you be willing to shut it down for a year or five years? Would you be willing to never see your grandkids again if that keeps you safer? It gets into a gray zone. Like if 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 you knew a hundred percent that if you saw your grandkids you would die within two weeks, then then would you be willing to only from now on interact with your grandkids only through Skype or Zoom? Some people would 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 say, yeah, you know, my grandkids, I love them, but they're not the centerpiece of my life. I have another life, you know. I Some people would say, yeah. Some people would be like, no, I'm not willing to pay that price. So then again, you say, well, what if it's a one percent chance that you'll they'll infect you with a deadly disease? What if it's a tenth of a percent? So it really is a matter of competing values. And one of these competing values is health, our safety, and to minimize risk. I'm not saying that's a bad value. And there are other values too. The value of, of going to a place like Esalen and having the nourishing or transformative or healing experience that people have there that comes not only from the teachers, but also from the place itself, from the decades of daring, audacious experiments that have gone on there from the intentions of the, the founders and the people who have held the place from the land itself, that special spot on earth, like that has a value as well. And should we forever abandon that if it saves a thousand lives a year, if it's part of saving a thousand or what about 10,000 or what if it's a hundred thousand and what if these and by again, saving life means postponing death. So what if it means if reducing the life expectancy of people over 70 by an average of 3.5 months, then do you shut it down forever? 
Do you never have, and more broadly speaking, do we conceive of a better society in terms of no more public gatherings, no more sports, no more festivals, no more dances, no more big weddings, no more yoga <laughs> yoga classes, um, no more parties, uh, no more carnivals, no more group hugs, uh, no more wilderness immersion programs for children and youth rites of passage. Is that progress where, where the handshake and the hug are an anachronism from a dirty past, an unsafe past? That is a decision that we are facing right now, actually. People hope that it's going to go back to normal. It is not going to go back to, quote, normal. And by that, I mean, there's some aspects of normal that nobody wants to keep that I don't want to keep. I don't want to go back to the normal of, say, so much mindless jet travel and military adventures. <laughs> COVID-19 cur curtailed a big military adventure in Venezuela. The U.S. was going to violently regime change it. And, you know, the Navy ships turned back. So, yeah, some aspects of normal I don't want to go back to, but the normal of ha having a... a uh, public life of, of sociality of all of these kinds of gatherings that I uh, I want to go back to that I want to reclaim that and it's not going to happen by itself we're not going to automatically go back to normal we have to actually choose that because there's always going to be a reason why it's safer not to do that it is safer not to do that at least in terms of dying of COVID-19 or the next mutation of it or the next virus, or it could be if H1N1 or whatever flu virus, et cetera, et cetera. There's always going to be a reason why more people will die if we ease quarantine and lockdown. So it, again, it's a matter of which, what values do we embrace? And it's not black and white. I just want to say that again. If somebody's saying, well, Charles, you're being callous about the people who are dying. I mean, uh, he, this is personal to me. My mother, my father are, are quite vulnerable. So I'm not just being like selfish and, oh, I want my freedom. Uh, I mean, I've had conversations with my mother about this. You know, do you, do you want everybody to lock down if it keeps you a little safer? She's, no, I've had a full life. I want other people to have a full life. So, so this is a public conversation because it's not just about keeping myself safe. It's about how safe do we, do we keep each other? And I'll just add, though, that this keeping safe actually is a very narrowly conceived kind of, of, of health and safety. Because, in fact, our health depends on a constant flow of information through our bodies. It depends on relationships to other people, to bacteria, to viruses, to all of life. In the end, if we do practice perfect isolation and never catch contagious diseases, we're going to end up being sicker, actually. You know, you can remember a few years ago, people were, you know, people were already realizing, wow, it's good for kids to eat dirt. You know, it's good to be exposed. So the, it's an illusion, actually, that we're safer, especially when you count the depression, the suicide, the addiction that is skyrocketing in the time of isolation and lockdown. We are social beings. We need this kind of interaction. And the hunger, I mean, this is another thing that's been invisible through the lens of privilege is that hundreds of millions of people on this planet, maybe billions of people on this planet, uh, live day to day. They earn the money to feed their families that day. For them, it doesn't mean work at home. If there's a lockdown, it doesn't mean work at home. It means your children do not eat today and tomorrow, and the next day. And this is happening to tens of millions of people around the world. I don't know if you've seen the photos and the videos 
um, of starving people who are another, there's already 5 million starving people every year. It's way more now. So for every life that we've saved through lockdown, are we counting? I mean, can you imagine, I don't know if you have children, but for your, to watch your child waste away in front of you and be unable to, to find food for them, to go to the, to the distribution center that's you know, set up in some of these places that are the hardest hit, and you wait in line all day and you still don't get any food, and your child hasn't eaten for three days, five days, 10 days, like, do you understand the level of suffering that is invisible to conventional epidemiology? That's not part of our policymaking. I mean, you know, we're in the days of Black Lives Matter. If, if we really take that seriously, I mean, most of the people who are suffering severe hunger right now are black and brown people. They are in Africa and South Asia. Uh, and, but even some in this country, there's a lot of hunger in this country right now under the surface. So anyway, that was a long rant, but- That was a beautiful impassioned rant. Just to cap the conversation off, in your essay, you talk about cycling back and forth between hope and despondency. So where are you currently vis-a-vis -vis humanity? Uh, well, I'm, I'm generally very optimistic and calling for the help that I need to stay active because my optimism is not things will be fine if we, you know, things will be fine as if things were separate from myself. My optimism is that a more beautiful world is possible if we participate in its emergence. If we participate in in the birth of that world, then it's possible. Like there is there is a beautiful destination beckoning us, and there is a path to that destination. That path may not be obvious. In fact, it's not obvious. In fact, the eyes that we have inherited are unable to see that path. It looks, it looks rationally speaking, it looks hopeless. It, 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 and, and that's where the despair and the despondency come from, that, that um, things are getting worse and worse, and no matter what I do, it's not gonna make it enough of a difference. And then at the same time, you know, we're in between worlds, like I've inherited that concept. Um, and also that everything that I do is significant. Uh, that that every, and not me, of course, only, but everybody, that every act that is in service to a more beautiful world, every act of compassion, of kindness, of generosity, of love, is a prayer that brings that world closer to us. And that reality doesn't work the way that we thought it did in this modern story of of force-based causality. There are causal principles that are beyond our understanding of force. There are beings out there who also are working for that more beautiful world. And if we can ally ourselves with them, we have access to power beyond what we could exert by force on the world. And that the way to access these powers is through the principle of reverence, where we see the holy beings that are surrounding us all the time including each other, from that experience of each other and ourselves, anything is possible. I know that in my bones. And there's the despondency, there's the despair, there's the depression that is my inheritance from the culture that I grew up in. And so my, my ask is that I receive the help that I need 
to trust what I know in my bones so that I can continue to be a participant in the unfolding of the more beautiful world my heart knows is possible. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, Kelly McKay, and Michelle Broderick. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.